My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I come from a family of business owners. You know, my family's, every single one of my family members, all my uncles are all run their own businesses and they've been successful in doing all that and it's kind of been drummed into you as a, as a child going, you know, don't always work for someone, run your own business, you'll be a lot more successful that way and I go, okay, fine, I'll do that. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we take a step back in time as Rob Flux interviews me pre-property investory. My journey has been full of twists and turns, complete with stints in the corporate world as well as attempts to start my own businesses. While you know where I ended up, you may be surprised to hear about the times I was nearly left up a creek without a paddle. Property Investory has been running since 2017 and in that time has garnered over 300 episodes. However, the journey to get there wasn't as simple as it may appear. I tried my hand in many different industries from web development to digital marketing where I hit many of the pain points my guests have also experienced. He actually started all the way back in the IT space, ran a couple of businesses, did a whole bunch of things where he just like you had lots of pain, lots of challenges. Uh, and we're going to find out exactly what it was that actually got uh, Tyrone to get the action and take the action to be where he is today. This is Return Serve because you recently had me on your show, and uh, I guess uh, I guess it's always good to to get the message out to uh, I guess the the folks out there, uh, the audience that you've got. Uh, I guess are very similar to ours with very similar journeys and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of yours are in the property investment space, mine are in the property development space, but uh, there's going to be a lot of similarities between the issues and challenges between both, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I, I, I totally resonate. And that's the reason why I wanted to bring you on the show because we're getting a lot more investors who are turning into developers. And there are also a lot of developers on our show too who really, really follow because they not only have developed, but they also keep investment properties from the sales. So they are considered both investors and developers, which is great. And I guess you've gone through a similar sort of journey, started out doing investing, and now I guess you're doing, I guess, funding in the development space. So you're, I, I guess, uh, I guess one of those people that have transitioned uh, all the way through, I guess, to the end. So uh, firstly, let's tell people a little bit about your property investory podcast, um, I guess, uh, how long have you been running it? And like, I think you're up to episode 300 and something. 
Thanks so much, Rob. Yeah, we our property investors was started back in 2017. It was just a podcast that I really wanted to share some stories because I was listening to a lot of property investment podcasts driving to work every day and we'll go into that shortly because I was working full time for a large building company and it was actually probably something I just really, really wanted to learn about and as well, one of my friends who had been um, investing in property, he was... When I first met him like a couple of years back when I was doing a bit of work with him, he only had like three properties when he started and then literally two years later, he was featured in Australia uh, Property Investor magazine and they were saying that he had like 12 properties and I said, what did you do in two years time? <laughs> I'm like, man, and I, I'm not still, you know, I've still got any a, a property there. I'm like, oh, you know, I got to do something different because I know him, you know, he's He's like me but you know, I, I think he was a lot more determined and motivated and, and really jumped in and that kind of where it just sparked my journey to go, okay, I got to do something different and at that point in time, I had some knowledge because I had taken a number of courses many years back but um, I was also running my business and then w- went back into the workforce full time but I didn't have enough knowledge to know what to really do and I was like, okay, what did you do and said, look, you know, I educated myself, took a lot of action. And I thought, okay, this is what I got to do. I got to do education. And one thing I wanted to do was to go and actually, um, I guess, interview people and, and find out you know, how they did it, what the stories were and so forth. And <laughs> I guess selfishly, it was mostly for me. That, that was the reason why I actually started the podcast because I wanted to learn. Uh, but luckily, you know, it turned out fantastic because I, I found out there was a market there for that and to share. And as I was saying at the beginning was when I actually started the podcast, it was because... I was listening to a ton of other podcasts out there and a lot of them were just talking about the how-tos and it didn't really delve into the why, the real journey and the stories behind why these property investors got to where they were because it's great to be able to go, okay, you know, I've got 10 different properties and each one's generating X, Y, and Z but it doesn't really sort of go, okay, you know, why did they do that? Was it for their family? Was it for the lifestyle, etc.? And that's where I really wanted to delve in and that's where it really started. So, it was been fantastic. What a fantastic segue because that's exactly what we're doing with you today. So the, the journey has come full circle and it's now our chance to interview you to understand how and why. And as I said in the intro, we want to take you all the way back to before you were, I guess, in the property space and understand where you were, what was happening, you know, what were the issues and challenges happening in your life? Uh, and then what was the thing that sparked the, the, the fact that you were, uh, I guess, wanting to kickstart your property journey? And then... How did that happen? You know, you don't just go from zero to infinity uh, in no time flat. There's issues and challenges and mate, let, let's dive deep. Are you ready? Ready as you are. <laughs> let's go back. But before you even got into the property space, what were you doing? What was your career back then? I've been in the IT side. So, I guess when I went to school and I, st- I studied at um, university, I went into computer science after I finished and um, finished high school. And so, I've been pretty much in the IT space for a while. Now, IT is very, very broad. You know, there's so many different areas. And as you know, Rob, you know, from your story, you've been in that space for a while, but there's so many different facets of it. And uh, when I guess I first started, I, I kind of jumped into sort of the web development side, you know, making websites. And back in what, 19, 19, end of 1900, or 1999 to 2000. 1900. You were carving it in chisel into stone. Or- That's right. You know, ready to get it downloaded into World Wide Web. Um, no, but I think it's actually, sorry, early early 2000s, I'm thinking back now and um, after I finished my university degree, which was back in 2004, I, I had two choices. Either I could go into IT 
or I could actually go out and, and run a business because I come from a family of business owners. You know, my families, every single one of my family members, all my uncles, they all run their own businesses and they've been successful in doing all that and it's kind of been drummed into you as a, as a child going, you know, don't always work for someone, run your own business, you'll be a lot more successful that way. And I go, okay, fine, I'll do that. But at the same time, I had this contradictory thing that my dad said, look, finish your degree, go out and gain some experience and work, you know, for a few years. And I thought, all right, well, I better take that advice on because that's what he said. <laughs> so, that's what I did. I jumped in and went into um, IT just for a few months just to explore what it's like and that's where I started web development. Now, at that same point in time, in the first year of uni, I flunked out. So, this was going back a few years ago. I, I literally failed a number of subjects and I was, you know, being a uni student, you kind of felt devastated and you go, oh, that's the end of life. But, <laughs> you know, inside you go, that's just being childish. But that's all you kind of growing up to. And at that same point in time, I was really, really felt like, what am I really doing? Do I really want to do IT? Do I want to do something else? And I guess that's where my auntie realized, look, it's, there's more to life. And she handed me this book, which most of you would probably have heard of, is Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. It's one of the classics back there, mate. <laughs> that's right. One of the classics. You know, I wish I could actually had it right here. But um. Everyone knows about it and, and when she gave me that book to read, I couldn't put it down. I literally picked it up at night and was up to like 2 or 3 a.m. and completely finished it. It was just so easy to read but it also resonated with me because I'm going, wow, it's more to life than just studying and going out to work full time and that's where it kind of just got stuck in my head subconsciously that, okay, I've got to run my own business. I've got to be in the B quadrant which is an investor or business owner and, and that's always stuck in my mind for the longest time since uni. So, I guess what I did was I did what you know my parent told me to do is just go out, get a job and, and just start working first to gain some experience. But in the back of my mind, during uni days, I actually got involved in a bit of learning about real estate. I started a vending machine business and that kind of just opened up my mind to what was possible because I needed some you know cash on the side and luckily for me, I guess I've been drummed in at a very young age that to be a good saver. So, everything that I earned, I always put away and I didn't really spend much. And even to today, my family and my, my wife knows I'm pretty frugal. I don't really spend that much and I'm very strong at saving. And I think that's kind of ingrained into me for a very, very long time. So, at that point in time, when I started running a business during my uni days, I made a little bit of money but I also got involved in real estate or, or property, I guess you can say. And, and I guess at that point in time, I was trying to educate myself and learn a little bit more and luckily, I've been very fortunate to be able to be working on the wing or not working but learning on the wing of a successful property investor which I have had on my podcast and is quite well known and he started to give me some ideas on how to actually go about um, training and, and looking at the right deals because back then, when you're looking at the market then, you could literally pick up properties in sort of the regional area for like 40, 50,000. It's like going to a candy shop and just picking up and they're all positive cash flow from day one. You're earning like, you know, $80, $100 a week from that and there was a specific formula that was very easy to work out. So, I thought, all right, well, let's do what he's done and um, I kind of started that journey to go, okay, I'm going to start looking for positive cash flow properties and, and at that point in time, I think that first year or second year of university, that was Steve McKnight, yeah? Yeah, that's right. That was Steve McKnight. I should have mentioned, yeah. So, Steve, Mc... yeah, Steve McKnight was one of my, my first mentors in property and he was really the, I guess you can say, the start of this journey of buying lots and lots of property. A lot of people wanted to do positive cash flow and he's written a successful book, 0 to 130 properties in, in three and a half years 
And I think that's what a lot of us, yes, <laughs> this book there, uh, a lot of us wanted to actually do exactly the same thing because if he can do it and we can learn from him, it's just following his strategy and his model. And, and that's how I got started. You know, I went out, looked for a property in a regional town and um, purchased it and purchased for like 105000 It was returning like $230 a week. And that was my first property investing journey back when I was very young, back at uni in the uh, first, first days of working. So... What was it that actually made you go buy that property? So it, it's all well and good to say, hey, I you know studied under Steve, but what made you think that you wanted to do that? What was the, the mechanism? It, was that the tidbit that you pulled out of the book or was that something else that you saw? What was the, what was the thing that, that went, hey, I just need to do this? Yeah, coming full circle, I thinking back at it, it was because of, I think, Rich Dad, Poor Dad thinking, okay, got to start becoming an investor in the big quadrant, looking at running a business and see how you can do that because... When I look back at the journey, the reason why I went into a vending machine business was because I was trying to set up some systems or set up some businesses where it just generate passive income. And that was the whole focus for me is to generate passive income. If I can buy multiple properties, buy multiple vending machines, I can do lots of those, then I get passive income. And I guess at that age, when you're like, you know, early 20s, you go, wow, if I can earn an extra, say, $1,000, $2,000 a week, I feel like I'm on top of the world and I can pretty much live, you know, like a king. And um, then I don't have to go out and work full time in a job or anything like that. And that was really the driving motivating force. And at that point in time, I thought if I do enough of these, I can just pretty much live on my own terms. And and that's the the start of where I guess I jumped into learning more about business, learning a bit more about IT and and getting into those things because that's where I was really passionate about. And at that point in time, if I could find myself to just have a place, you know, have, have a place where I could live moving out of my home with, with my parents because I was still living at home with my parents at that age, then I, I think I could start to live my own life and live my own terms. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I found a place locally, um, rented a place where I could actually get one of the rooms which I could live in and then rent out the other three. And literally the other three that rented from us in that house which is share accommodation paid for my room and I literally was living rent free and I thought that's just perfect. I don't have to worry about boarding. I don't have to worry about all that. Just, you know, pay for groceries and I'm, I'm sweet and then run my own business. And I thought that would be the dream which is what I did but it didn't turn out that way obviously. So, <laughs> so why not mate? What happened? Back then, internet was just starting to become really, it was really taking off and a lot of people were starting to get online and make money online, you know, make your first million and all that kind of stuff and there's a lot of you can say scams out there that kind of entice you to do that. And I kind of got stuck in that too and thinking, wow, I could live the dream, sit on Palmas and sip a pina colada and yeah, <laughs> make money passively. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not like that. You know, there's a lot of hard work and you got to find the right opportunity. And, and I searched and searched for so many different types of things to do, jumped into doing like marketing, jumped into learning about how to set up websites and sell that kind of stuff. But it still didn't cut it because I didn't have enough experience, didn't have much, um, I guess you can say, confidence to be able to sell these kind of things. And no matter how much I offered, I just didn't get the volume. And that was the challenge. Like membership courses back then were very popular. If you did the numbers, say for example, you could sell a monthly subscription to to you know sign up for like $50 a month and you get say 1,000 students in paying you a thousand a thousand students paying fifty dollars a month that's like fifty thousand dollars a year a month you know that is insane amount of money for a very young young kid like me and i thought all right well let's let's try and do that the reality is is that most of the time when you're trying to find say a thousand subscribers to subscribe to your course paying you fifty dollars a month 
um, it's a numbers game and you might only get maybe a, a percentage, like 1% or 2% conversion over to be able to do that. So that means if you were to try and find 1,000, you would need to at least tap into a database of more than say 10,000, if I'm doing the math right. No, more than that, actually 100,000 <laughs> potential prospects to be able to get 1,000 members. And that I didn't realize until I started the journey and that was not realistic because then that means you'd have to have a huge database of 100,000 engaged prospects that would be interested in your course and what I was selling back then was pretty simple but it wasn't enticing enough and yeah, obviously that didn't work for me and probably when I first started my first course, I only had maybe about 50 members and I thought, oh, this is really, really hard work. <laughs> so, you can imagine, you know, some of the challenges I faced. I know lots of people that have gone similar journeys and tried to, to you know, they've tried to do Amazon sales, they've tried to do uh, you know, all sorts of internet marketing, that, uh, share trading options, all sorts of things. And, and uh, I think all of us at one stage that end up being successful have done lots of things that we've failed along the way like that, uh, only to go, well, that's, that's not the thing that's for me. I mean, I was passionate about that stuff. The challenge was, was that the dream that was sold was not realistic. And if people actually understood and see the numbers behind it because they never tell you that you need to get at least a database of 100,000 people to do this, then you know, you'd know you realize, gosh, this is really, really difficult to actually get in and the people that really make it is usually the one percenters and, and people don't say that. You know, you, you get this dream sold right in front of you, you go, wow, this is great and obviously, they're trying to sell you something at the end of the day and that's how they're able to get, make their money. Well, I've reverse engineered how it is that they are successful because they're trying to sell you on how you do it. Uh, and that then that in itself, they're teaching you how to teach yourself. Uh, that's the six, they're the people who get the, the millions of people because all of us are desperate in those early stages. We all want to learn that. Uh, but then when we go and implement that, that's when we work out that actually that bit, that bit's the hard bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, t telling us it's possible. But, so I've done lots of those, mate. You, you're not the only one there. Tr trust me. Uh, I've probably I've probably burnt a good hundred uh, odd k on 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 schemes like that that easily. I think we've all been down that rabbit hole. And I guess for for people who are starting out in that kind of side, just be cautious. That's all I can say. Is just you know ask people who've done it and and see what the experience is. And not saying that it's not possible. But just be prepared that it is extremely, extremely challenging, especially in today's times. There's so much out there and so much competition um, you're fighting against to get people's attention. And that's the challenge that I think I'm, I'm, we're facing even today. But I guess I, I wanted to also take a step back and just share something else that was really interesting. And this is where I guess I can say I kind of made it and you know started a successful business because as I was saying, I was trying so many different things. Um, back at uni days, I was trying to find a sport because growing up in high school, I was always very active and, and I guess once you get kind of ingrained to do activities and sport during the, the Saturdays and the weekends and train two or three times a week, you kind of you kind of can't stop that because it's just kind of part of you and, and I've always been active and very fit, fit and um, doing athletics and some type of active thing and I guess once you kind of get used to that, you kind of want to find that when you go into university and, and unfortunately uni, you kind of slacken off like especially when they go, okay, it's your responsibility to turn up to lectures, your responsibility to complete these shoots and attend these exams. If you don't attend, no one's going to give you a slap on the wrist like they do at school. And, um, you know, I learned the hard way because that's how I failed in the first year because I spent too much time partying, <laughs> chasing after girls. 
uh, going to play basketball all the time and you know you learn these hard lessons along the way realize gosh you missed that too but who cares but at the end of the day it affects your results i always laugh because university is one of those places where mum and dad are really proud of the fact that you're going um and yet that's the very place that you're partying you're you're slacking off you like uh so you know behind the scenes everyone's proud and in the end you it doesn't get you where you really want to get to so true so true it's a shock to the system to be honest that first year man i was like what the <laughs> so so your your sport you you took up uh dragon boating yes correct yeah so i was really around about the second year and third year actually i took yeah took up the sport it was actually funny because i was trying to find something to do and at the same time, I was looking for a social event and a, a person from uni introduced me actually to dragon boating and said, look, just come along, have a, have a look and, and you know, hop on the boat with us and do that. I thought, all right, this sounds interesting. I'll go and check it out. And I've never heard of it before. I, I didn't realize that there were so many people in the community. It was only when I attended and it's only by Glebe. Like Glebe is, is like literally next to Darling Harbour. It's not far from there. And when I attended, I was like, hold on, is this actually for real? You can actually lift up a 20... 20 man boat like you have 20 people carrying this boat lifting it out and then just drop it into you know the water down at the glebe down in darling harbour because i thought there's got to be some rules behind all this you can't just hop onto the water without permission they said you know it's all checked out and all that kind of stuff so they have they had a permanent spot down there and all, all locked up all their boats and paddles and stuff like that and anyway went on that first journey and i thought wow this seems pretty fun it's it's social you get you know 19 other people on the boat you're actually training, enjoying the fun of it. You know, I don't think people always enjoy training, but I did. <laughs> but also at the same time, you have a bit of a view because you're looking out by the ocean too because you can paddle all the way out from where you are at the Darling Harbour. And I thought this would be a fantastic way to just one, get fit, get back into doing some exercise and socialize at the same time. And that's what I did. You know, I, I attended for a good 12 months just to try and get into the sport um, because there are so many different clubs, you have to choose which club we're in. And luckily for that particular person that I was introduced to, I automatically became part of that club without knowing that I was part of that club. And I just paid a membership fee and up and away I was. Now, after about 12 months or so, I kind of got a little bit competitive as I usually do with any type of sport and I started competing in you know the local states. Then I went to nationals and yeah, after that, I could have been invited and gone over to compete internationally and I didn't even know that it was possible <laughs> until they actually started running these events and um, I didn't have the funding. Being a university student, I couldn't you know, take time off to train because you had to train like five days a week and yeah, travel overseas and all that and I didn't have the money and I said, look, you know, <laughs> I'm more than happy to, to support you guys from the back end um, but yeah, I can't go and travel overseas and do all that stuff. So, all I did was I get to the international level, uh, sorry, international level we competed um, and I remember that first year when I competed, we went to Canberra and there was a lot of different um, states coming from, yeah, from other, other places and competing against us and so many of them were really excited to come to Sydney and to compete and then afterwards go to Canberra to compete as well for the finals and what was really interesting was you, you realize looking around, there's so many people involved in this sport. And a lot of people were demanding or interested in buying a specific type of paddle. And back then, if you saw dragon boating as it stood, back in China, they had these wooden paddles and it was pretty much hand carved and it's just plain stick. Like, you know, pull it through the water and that's it. <laughs> nothing, nothing fancy. But as, as the dragon boating sport took off, not only in the States and Canada because it's such a large sport, it's as big as like an Olympics um, sport over there. 
Australia started to take that on and people were going, man, if I can improve my stroke and time by you know a few split seconds because I wasn't carrying so much weight due to these wooden paddles, we could actually go faster than the boat. So that's where people start finding out about carbon fiber paddles and these things, man, they were so light. Like you can imagine only like 350 grams, some of them got down to 300 grams compared to a, a wooden paddle which would weigh almost twice that, about almost a kilo. <laughs> And uh, that, that's where my journey started to go, okay, man, there must be an opportunity here. I want to get a paddle myself too. I want to find out where do I buy these things. And unfortunately, in Australia, there's only really one at most two suppliers that offer that. And those one or two suppliers that offer that um, charge like quite an expensive amount. It was only like, how much was it? I think for memory, it was like $350 for a paddle. And I know that another mob was selling them for like you know $400 a paddle. And I thought there's got to be a better way to be able to get these from overseas because no one was actually importing them as, as such as a business. Like our local club leader, I think her name was Mel if I remember correctly. She would do a batch order to this company over in, the, in Canada, I think it was, and, and just say, hey guys, who wants to order these paddles? Um, I'm doing a batch for 50. If you want it, just let me know. And she was just doing this out of kindness. She didn't make any money out of it. She was just trying to get these paddles across. And I think she bought them in for about like $280 a pop or something like that because she bought them in bulk and cost and save. And I thought, man, if I could actually, you know, maybe tap into this resource and, and call the supplier and say, hey, have you got a distributor in Australia? Which I found that they didn't. Would you like me to actually help you guys do that? And on top of that, would you throw in a free paddle for me too? And that's exactly what I did. I, I, I basically contacted them and and start a relationship and I became pretty much the distributor for that particular product and kind of took off the hands of Mel because she was like, this is burning me. I've got better things to do rather than just do these three orders for everyone. So you've turned your passion into a business effectively. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, it really, really was an eye-opener because I didn't realize I could do it. And I think once you're passionate about something, you will find any way and every way possible to make it work for you. And that's what I did because I want <laughs> my motivation get a free paddle but at the same time make some money from it. And that particular first deal, man, that just took off and people got the word that I started importing these things. And there's probably a, a huge lesson, I guess, for our audience in there to say, you know, mum and dad always tell you work hard, get a job, go to uni, that sort of thing. But uh, you tend to get your successes in the things that you love and the things that you actually... Uh, I guess, put all of your energy into because you genuinely want to and you'll find those little niches like you just touched on. So, mate, that, that was a relatively successful business for you from what I understand. Like, like, how long did you run that business for? I think it was a good probably three to four years actually before I sold it because what happened was that was only the first part and <laughs> when I started discovering and doing some research online and luckily the internet had started to you know get really, really... Um, I guess reliable and that's when websites start popping up a lot more and I could actually find out where all the different distributors were. So I started reaching out to all the distributors in US because there was no, no one here in Australia and I started taking on the exclusive uh, distribution of that and by the end of um, I guess that second year or so, I had pretty much dominated all the dragon boating I guess um, distribution rights across Australia and I pretty much imported every single possible product that they had into my business and there's only one other brand that i couldn't have because he already had distribution rights in australia but because i had such a wide variety of them people could pick and choose go which which brand they like 
So if you think about it, it's almost like as though you go into a Rebel store and you have multiple brands in there and you can pick and choose which one is suitable. You know, you might choose based on price, choose on performance, quality and so forth. And that's what I did. I, I pretty much put it all on a website, um, turned it into a 24-7 online store and people could just click online and just shop and they literally would. You know, you get orders of, of clubs ordering 20, 30 paddles all in one go and you get it all done online. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. And all we do is just place the order overseas, bring it here, distribute, you know, obviously pack it and then redistribute it and then get it out to the clubs and that's where we make our money. So volume, it was, it was fun. It was great, great business to do. I guess the, the segue there for, I guess, your, your property journey, that would have been improving your cash flows and things like that and uh, I guess giving you opportunity to go and buy more property but uh, my understanding is at that point in time you you didn't kickstart uh, and, and take on the original investment a little bit further. So what was the roadblock that, that kind of stopped that from happening? My first investment property that I, I discussed very, very briefly was I purchased this property in a regional town. It was a commercial property and this is one thing I learned looking back in hindsight was I guess my mistake was to jump into commercial at that point in regional town at that point in time as well as too early. Because with commercial, it's slightly different to how residential um, banks, for example, lend up to about 80% usually for residential. So, all you have to do is probably come up with a 20% deposit and you know some extra you know percentage for, for stamp duty and fees and so forth. So, at all up, you, you probably need a 25% um, cash deposit. With commercial, it's slightly different. You need to, for that particular property, if I remember, I think I need to come up for about a 35 to 40% deposit to be able to purchase that property. Luckily, it wasn't too much. It was only a hundred and five thousand dollar property, so you know I had to come up with about forty k. But as a university student, I saved up a lot to be able to do that. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, this is quite a lot of money to be tied up in there. And we need to put this in context. This is a long time ago, so that's a lot of money, right? I remember buying my first house at fifty five thousand dollars. I wish I could buy houses like that now, but uh, yeah. So just remember, folks, time time changes things, but. So yeah, you, you need a lot of capital and, and you weren't able to generate that capital, yeah? That's exactly right and, and the challenge was I still needed the money for the business as well too because running any business to be successful, you still need to have some ca- kind of cash. You can't just draw that money out. If you're making money, it's great and the cash flow is fantastic but you still need to plow that back in because we were basically a physical goods business. It's not like online nowadays that you could actually just have a course on there and then you know ship it and then still get paid and you hold that with these physical goods you need to have some kind of cash buffer to be able to pay your supplies back as well too and i will buy more and more stock at that point in time to be able to sustain because the the demand was very high especially in the peak season you want to make sure that you got quite a few number of paddles like hundreds of paddles available at, at the minute of a call because otherwise you know, if 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 that even don't have in the stock, they'll go to someone else, and then in the end, you know, they'd be disappointed customers. So, I was literally paying all my money back into the business, which I guess you can say that I couldn't pull any more money out to better buy another investment property. Now, as most people know, and this is where I guess the the journey sort of turns, and I learned a lot since you know interviewing so many people on the podcast, is that a lot of people leapfrog from one property to another. In order to do that, you need to be able to have another cash deposit whether it be from equity from a property or you save up. Now, as you know, I couldn't save up because I had to use that cash for the business. So, the only other way was possibly refinance that particular property and draw equity. Unfortunately, that property <laughs> didn't generate any uplift or capital growth being regional and it was a very positive cash flow property. Um, I went back to the bank numerous times. They just 
yeah, couldn't revalue it. And even when I did sell it in the end after about five years, I sold it for the exact same amount, which is really disappointing. Well, that I mean, that's a reflection of commercial because commercial is valued on the rent it generates and the yield. So unless you can increase the rent, um, the value doesn't actually change. Uh, unlike, I guess, residential property where the, the, the market demand will actually drive that up. And unless you can actually drive that extra rent, it's... Uh, you're kind of stuck. It's a, it's a cash flow business being in commercial rather than, a, I guess, a, a wealth creation, which is capital growth. Um, so you hit the glass ceiling that a lot of people uh, hit, but you hit it in a different way because you were, I guess, trying to, I guess, get that capital growth, which you couldn't pull out. Um, so you weren't able to reinvest. So these businesses that you were, I guess, that business, I should say, was trying to generate the, I guess, the next purchase. Um, but, but, as you said, because you're reinvesting the cash, it, it, you just weren't able to get there. So you're hitting the same roadblocks that most other people are hitting, right? Um, so what did you try to do from there? Like you've got a successful business, it's actually doing really well, but you still couldn't kickstart your property side of things. What what was the next thing that you tried to do from there to try and go, well, how do I, how do I kickstart this journey? This is a great question that you've asked because that's where it started going, okay, what other opportunities can I find, not necessarily in property but in business to be able to do that and uh, <laughs> being young, you know, you want to try different things and once again, as I said, I, I tried internet um, marketing, that didn't work for me. I also did try and import a, <laughs> a little drop, we can say, um, a deodorizer that was trying to deodorize the smell of going after number two. I've seen these things and so you, you drop basically some oil or, or essence into the toilet and it creates a surface um, so that the smell doesn't get out, yeah? Exactly and um, you know, it wasn't something that I found, it was actually my wife. She said to me, you know, I, I, I saw this online and I thought, oh, let's just see if we can find out if there's got a distribution because you know, once you kind of get on that distribution learning curve and you go, okay, if I can actually buy more distribution rights in different countries like Australia from another country and distribute these exclusively, there's potentially money to be made. So I, I thought, all right, I'll take the same model that I had from Dragon Body and apply it to this same thing because this particular company, which their name was Just a Drop, um, which is a funny, interesting name, it was a blue drop. As Rob has mentioned, you put that film in there or drop that little, you know, I guess drop in there creates a little film. They didn't have any exclusive distribution rights in Australia as yet. They were actually spreading across the US and they were doing it very successfully there and same thing as in Canada because that's originally where they're made and they're looking also at UK as well but in Australia, they didn't have anyone. So, I thought perfect opportunity to be able to have a look and see if we can sign some kind of exclusive agreement which we end up doing because we thought there'd be a market for it and they said, look, we'll provide you all the training, we'll help you and support you from over here, give you some ideas on how to do it. And they said to us, the way that they were successful and able to distribute it and actually get the word out was through PR, which is basically to get appeared in as much, um, I guess, publicity, media outlets and so forth as much as possible. So we did that. You know, we started to learn a little bit more about how to do that and we got featured in newspapers. We started getting it out onto different areas. And back then, actually, they didn't really have podcasts and I wish that they did. <laughs> then I could have distributed it through that way as well or market that way. But we, once we started getting into, say, newspapers and we started doing some marketing online, we started to actually see some people actually purchasing it and um, that's why, why we had a website set up because people come on, online to order. So, we kind of replicated what we did in Dragon Boating to just a drop. Now, the challenge was, was that um, we had to purchase quite a bit of stock initially and, and 
<laughs> this is the, the challenge with any physical businesses is that you have to be able to inject more cash into the business to be able to sustain that. And that's what we did. So I had to pull a lot more money out once again from Dragon Buddy to invest into this business and also spend a lot of my time and effort to be able to promote it and market it. And unfortunately, when we got to say the second batch to be able to purchase, the dollar had also dropped as well quite substantially. And that also impacted us being able to buy out a lot more because instead of purchasing say, you know, one dollar $1 equivalent to about, I think it was 80 odd cents, it dropped down to about one to 70 cents. So that had a huge 10% impact on the cost of purchasing these out and therefore, you know, the margins dropped quite drastically. And, and don't forget, these products were not, you know, selling for $100 a pop. They were only selling for like $5.95 or, you know, if you buy a pack of that, you get it for $39.95. And that's what we're trying to do is sell these in volume so that way we can get that, get that through. Fortunately, after about 12 months or so, burning a lot of cash, a lot of time and effort into it, we just had to let it go because the, the dollar also impacted it. We couldn't get enough traction because people just didn't really catch on and understand why you want to do that. And it just turned out to be some, almost like a gimmick for them. And yeah, we just had to unfortunately close shop. So we lost yeah, quite a substantial amount of money and a lot of stock at the end of the day. And we end up just giving those you know things away to family and friends and stuff like that. And since then, I haven't really heard much of it. You know, 20 years later, many people wanting to use it. So... <laughs> I recall one of your competitors um, had a little bit more of a, uh, I guess, a memorable, catchy name, um, Poopery from memory. Yeah, Poopery. Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> so you were you were well ahead of the curve by the sound of it, mate. But uh, sometimes you can be a little bit too much of an early adopter. Yeah, it was way too early. I think it's sometimes you just got to you know go with the flow. But um, I guess it's kind of interesting that we didn't continue down that path because. I, after running about two, no, three different product-based businesses or physical type of businesses, I realized I got to get out of that type because it's really cash flow intent or cash intensive, and also physically intensive. Um, even though, for example, in today's market, we've got Amazon and drop shipping and all that, um, it, it still requires some form of huge capital injection to keep these things running. And that's why, at that point in time, I made a decision not to go back into that path because I didn't want to be, you know, helping pack stuff i mean i had already done a lot of it for dragon boating i was mostly the packer for distribution we got a lot of accessories like croc shoes for example we had a lot of that i had to do a lot of packing for that and it, it, it ties you out and I, yes i could have hired people but every time i do that it obviously impacts our profitability of the business so i said to myself the next business i go into will have to be either property which is what i did or something that doesn't require physical um products which is where i've went ended up going back into financial it so that's kind of where it landed coming up after the break we delve into the power of passion and again uh it's one of those things where you're following your passion the difference between delegation and abdication going out and buying a i guess getting a buyer's agent to bring you a deal is a fantastic way of outsourcing the um i guess the effort we discussed the time where it all started to turn around which came as a surprise for many reasons anyone know that date folks and that's next i'm Tyron shum and you're listening to property investory hey 
Let's be real. Deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. After trying so many different routes and avenues, I knew it was time to do something. While I knew I wanted to be in property, I hit the glass ceiling so many times before and was determined to break through it this time. And then I guess the idea of the podcast came along and, and I think you said you saw a mate, uh, I guess, go from three properties to 12 in a really shorter period of time and that, that's kick-started the, hey, I want to do something about it. So, how did that, how did that start the, I guess, the podcast element of, of things? As I mentioned, I've been running businesses for many, many years. I think it was a total of about seven or eight years. And by that point in time, um, my first son, my first child came along, which is my son, back in about 2014. And um, at that point in time, as you know, with running a business, it's, it's very cash flow intensive, and we need stability because one month you might have a huge month, another month might, you know, low and so forth. And it depends on the season of, of things. And at that point in time, we needed some kind of stability. So. I guess my wife and I decided that it'd be best that I go back into the workforce to work full time and, and that's that's what I did and at that point in time, I went into work as a project manager slash digital marketing manager as well too at a large building company and I had been there already probably about three years um, since 2014 to 2017 and at that point in time, I was still searching. At the, I guess early stages when you have your first child for any parent that knows this, the first probably two to <laughs> three years, you just don't get much sleep. You don't think about anything else except survival. That's really it and, and that's why it never occurred to me that I needed to look for something else because I could not have run another business again. It would have been too stressful and we just needed that s- stable income coming in. And, and once you hit sort of the third year, year with a child, you decide, oh, let's have another baby. <laughs> it's like, what am I thinking? <laughs> Don't do that, mate. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, but at, at that point in time, um, I guess when you have your second child, it, it, it's it's a little bit easy because you know what to expect. And, and I guess by then she was already one years old. Um, by when we were hit about 2017, and I thought, all right, I, I think I'm going to make a change because ultimately I could not see myself working in full time job for the rest of my life. You know, you got a fixed income, which is great, it's stable, but every time I see the um, I guess the, the pay slip come in, I saw how much tax I was paying, how many hours I was working and I was saying every time I go back to ask for a raise, my boss would only give me maybe a thousand dollars or two you know, in a year. This is not talking about you know, every month or something like that. It's, it's insane and, and I thought, man, I'm going to be hitting a ceiling here very soon because I'll never be able to get out of this and I'm stuck in this rat race and, and once again, it's a ceiling issue because I want to earn more money so I can buy more property and I couldn't. So, that's where it kind of hit me and go, okay, I got to do something different and um, as I said and as you've said, you know, I met my friend who I knew a couple of years back um, 
that he was only having like three properties and then you know featured in a magazine two years later. And I went, wow, what has he done differently? And he was also working full-time. Um, I mean, he's okay for me to disclose this. He was like only earning $70,000 a year. And he said exactly the same thing. I've got to find another way because no matter what he does, even though he loved his job and he'd been doing it for 10 years, he can never earn more income than you know he had because that's his limit. And, and unless you're climbing the corporate ladder, getting up to like a CEO position to be earning you know six figures easily, there's no way you can get out of that. And, and when you're working in a company with like a thousand employees, it's very challenging. So the only way to really get out was to, okay, one, either invest more into property, either having um, more cash flow or start another business. And I thought, all right, <laughs> that's the only way, other way. Yeah, done this before. It just depends on when. <laughs> and it kind of rung true. As I said at the beginning, my father said, you'll never be able to earn enough or, or make a lot of money just working for someone. So you've got to go out there and, and start your business. And I think at that point in time, I needed to educate myself. I needed to make some changes. And I thought this might be the, the way to actually uh, change my life. I don't know how long it's going to take, but if I stick with it, it will definitely get there. And obviously, from 2017 to now, it's been five years. It, it's really, really had a huge change. And the business you're talking about is the podcast, yes? Yes, the business is the podcast. That's right, with Property Investry. But ultimately, at the end of the day, to be realistic, it has taken three to four years to get to where it is today. It, you know, for the first couple of years, it didn't really do much at all. And, and that's the reason why I was still in full-time employment because I just had to keep building it. And again, uh, it's one of those things where you're following your passion and and I guess that's, you know, twice now, follow your passion, turn that into a business. It, it I guess that's how and where you get start to get success. So, uh, I guess when you came up with the idea of the podcast, uh, who who was person number one? Who was the first interview mate? And, and how did you convince them to come on when you've got absolutely no experience in podcasting and no audience and nothing? So, who, who was it and how did you get them on? That's something I should have probably mentioned. I did have um, some, I guess, experience in podcasting because as I mentioned, I tried internet marketing and as you do, <laughs> you try podcasting as well. So, I did video marketing, I did podcasting, did all that in there and I kind of loved podcasting because it was just having these conversations with people who I've never ever met before and I really, really enjoy that because one, as, as you know, there's blogging that was taking off. There's all these other kind of forms of media and I tried blogging for a stage as well as you would try and it just didn't work for me because I could not sit there and just every day force myself to write. I'm not naturally a great writer nor am I great at writing anything at all. I actually failed English at school too but when it comes to having casual chats like how we're doing right now and getting onto a podcast, I just felt very comfortable with it and that's the reason why I kind of just jumped back into it and you know, you could literally be sitting behind a screen without people seeing who you are in your pajamas and need to bring someone else. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm wearing nothing down here, mate. This, this is an easy job. Like, <laughs> so, that's why I loved it. You know, you know, I, it could exactly be that. So, that's why I, I guess I went back into it and I thought this would be an easier way for me. But to answer your question, yes, it, my first guest, ever guest was Chris Gray that came onto the podcast. Now, some of you may know who he is. He's a contrarian. Um, says about he's got a fantastic lifestyle, has a huge portfolio but he lives off his equity and you know, for a lot of us, I find that quite um, contradictory because a lot of us have been trained as investors that you want to try and keep your debt low, not to keep building up your debt. 
So we might kind of delve into that a little bit deeper to, as to how that works. Basically, when you've got a portfolio large enough, the market is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you and your equity just keeps growing every year irrespective. Uh, and so he's just, I guess, drawing down on some of that equity uh, in, in order to live his lifestyle. So the, the property goes up and he draws some out and then he goes up and he draws some out. So that, that clearly you have to get into enough properties to make that uh, sustainable. Uh, so there, there's a couple of steps that need to happen before that works. But when you get to there, it, it works really well. Uh, but like you said, um, you know, you still have a large amount of debt and, and the debt gets bigger and bigger every year as you draw more and more equity out of it. Yes. And also, I guess you, you make the assumption that your property values go up every year. And that, that doesn't always happen as you've seen. You know, it might happen in spurts. So I guess the challenge that I see with that kind of strategy is because unless your properties go up, um, you won't be able to refinance and if you've got nothing to refinance, you can't draw more equity out. So, hence the reason why I think you'd have to have some other forms of cash flow which the reason why he's also got buyer's agency as well is to obviously I think fund that kind of cash flow as well too. But yes, it's a, you have to get to that point. I mean, he's got like 14 plus properties and they're all located all in Sydney. So, you know, for anyone who can sort of do the math on that, he's had that for more than I think probably 20 years or something like that. There's probably enough yeah, in there too. So that's working really well for him. But he had to get to the point where he had to buy the 20 properties in the first place. And so more and more people got coming on your podcast, you're learning more and more different ways to acquire and manufacture and all sorts of things like that. So um, I guess uh, who, I guess as you started to, to do this and you're starting to learn all these different ways of doing property differently, what were some of the ones that stood out um, from a from a from just an ideas perspective? I think what I'll do is just sort of give people a bit of perspective of who's come onto the podcast and just sort of just touch on some of those people's um, ideas and suggestions. So I've had people like John Lindemann, Jan Summers, Steve McKnight, who has been one of my favorite ones. And, and, and as you know, at the beginning, he was my mentor. And for me, it was like, wow and i'm so honored steve to have you on my podcast because you've been my teacher and my mentor and stuff like that and for you to share your story with the listeners and myself i just felt like as though you know i won the lottery so having him on was fantastic i've had people like sheree barber who's a celebrity renovator on on a lot of the media and tv shows john l fitzgerald and and, and i should make it clear actually a lot of these people actually reached out to us because they actually saw the success and wanted to you know i guess share their story on the podcast i'm very grateful for having all that knowledge a lot of these people who i've I've met have initially were property investors that have come on and you know invested into a lot of properties but eventually what happens is that they actually move on to do property development or some kind of development of adding value whether it be renovations subdividing or, you know, building up, you know, townhouses and so forth or, or construction of some sort. And and that's what I've learned along the journey because I've interviewed so many guests and yes, there's a lot of buy and hold investors out there but they get to a point going, okay, I've got 20 plus properties. What am I going to do next? Well, I can either add value or start development. <laughs> Typically, that's what happens. They, they hit the glass ceilings and unless you actually, because you're waiting for the market to do the lifting, right? That's right. But when you do the property development and there's lots of ways to add value, you're manufacturing the profit, which means that you're not reliant on the market. And that's that's probably the key. Uh, and we find in our audience, uh, a lot of the people that have had that same journey that you had, then get to the point to go, well, how do I start to manufacture this? And, you know, uh, so you, you've you kind of realized that through your podcast. Um, what, what are some of the better ways or what are some of the creative ways you've seen to manufacture it? I think the easiest path for a lot of them who have started was to jump in and, and do a subdivision because 
it's, it's very low risk in the sense that you don't have to actually think about building, especially as you've seen and heard during the COVID times, prices of supplies have gone up so much, especially timber and you know the cost of actually finding that, finding tradespeople and, and getting builders and so forth is, is quite challenging. But a lot of the people who are able to just find a block of land and subdivide it maybe one into two, one into three, or whatever amounts that they can subdivide it into can actually make a reasonable amount of profit and also add value. And it's a matter of just knowing what's involved, you know, working with the council and, and getting the right team on board to be able to help you that. And I found that that's probably the most simplest and, and the most interesting way or easiest way to get started. Now, some of the interesting ones I've seen is quite substantial developments that I, I couldn't even think that was possible. Like I'm just thinking of a commercial block that was done in Sydney, one of the developers I've had on there. And literally, from what I remember, he initially purchased that um, office space and said they converted it directly into like a, a, almost a hotel or, or, you know, lots of rooming accommodations. And I thought, wow, that is insane because, you know, to convert the structure to do all that is means that you have to really gutter out a lot of things. And a lot of people wouldn't probably take on that challenge because it's quite risky, um, especially when it's already zoned for office and you've got already existing tenants in there. But then he's obviously done the numbers on it and realized, wow, if you actually turn it into more of residential um, unit spaces and, and could actually sell each individual one, then there's probably a lot more profit made. So that's been a very, I guess, different way of looking at things that I've, I've had on an interview. Um, but I'm trying to think of any other sort of developments, but mostly I think a lot of developers go in there with in mind to ensure that they have minimized the risks to be able to go and do what they need to do because the last thing you want to do is take on something that's too big to chew. And I've seen that happen already with a few developers I've... I've um, worked with as well, they've just taken on too much and unfortunately with the market turning, interest rates rising, um, you know, they've kind of pretty much gone almost bust. Not necessarily gone completely under but you can already start to see they've already overcommitted themselves. So I think that's the challenge that we've seen in the market and um, how developers can really make sure that they want to try and mitigate their risks and reduce the kind of um, things they go into. That's not too challenging. Agreed wholeheartedly and that's really about educating yourself and making sure you understand what I guess what the process is, or guess what your issues and challenges are, and and put some risk mitigation plans in place. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of people fall down is don't put that education side in. Now, as I understand it, mate, you're in a really fortunate position in running the podcast, and you've got a lot of people uh, that do education that have kind of come onto your show and said, "Hey, Tyrone, why don't you come to my program?" Uh, so you you've kind of you've learnt a lot of that stuff uh, along the way. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have to go into, I guess, how, you know, it's like falling off the back of a truck, but you've, you've learned those things. Uh, so you've learned the skills in how to actually apply it. But, um, you know, I guess was learning the skills enough, mate? Was, I guess as soon as you had the knowledge, were you able to take action straight away? No. So let, let me share a little bit of background story. So I, I wholeheartedly encourage anyone listening to spend as much time as you can to educate yourself because that's the key thing. When I first started the podcast, as I said, I kind of did it because I really wanted to learn. I wanted to educate myself and very luckily, you know, for me, I, I managed to get a lot of this kind of um, as guests, you know, for, for attending a lot of these courses and educations and stuff like that. So, it did save me a lot of money but, you know, if I actually had to pay it, I probably would spend over easily 100K on all the courses that I would have attended but I, I would highly recommend anyone who's, who's getting into this to actually educate themselves 
and ensure that you know you learn and try to apply as much as possible. Now, as Rob has asked, <laughs> even if you pick up all these skills, educate yourself wasn't enough. And for me in my journey, no, it wasn't um, because the thing is, if you don't take any action, nothing will happen. And, and this is what happened was I, I did take numerous courses and uh, for me, I, I try to take as much action and I kind of got to a point after about 12 months of learning and also trying to implement, try and do all the door knocking, <laughs> letter drop, dropping and, and trying to find deals. I didn't get anywhere after 12 months and I spoke to my coach about it at that point in time. I said to him, you know, what am I doing wrong? What, I, what do I need to do? And he said, he gave me a little shortcut and said, look, just find a buyer's agent and get someone to find the deal for you instead of you going out there. And I realized, well, if I had known that 12 months ago, I would have saved a lot of time. But, you know, obviously, it's part of that learning. And I thought, all right, well, I've got to find um, another sort of way to do it. So, I took on his advice but I also went on and found another coach that could also support me because this particular coach was supporting me from a friend point of view and that was fantastic. But obviously, I needed someone who I can be more accountable to and dedicated and that's the reason why I went and saw another coach. Before you jump down that one, I just want to do a point of clarification if I can because going out and buying, a, I guess getting a buyer's agent to bring you a deal is a fantastic way of outsourcing the, um, I guess, the effort. Um, but where I see a lot of people go wrong and you might be able to comment on this uh, is the difference between delegation and abdication. So, uh, you know, delegating the work for someone else to do is great, uh, but abdicating and getting them to make the decisions for you and then just going, yeah, yeah, it must be a great deal. So for anyone who wants to outsource it, make sure you have the education in the first place to be able to qualify that the deal they're bringing you back is actually a deal because there's many times where that that deal not necessarily is. And you're fortunate in that you had the education to be able to assess the deal on its merits so that was that was fantastic but i see a lot of people try to shortcut early when they haven't got the ability to to sanity check that absolutely i mean this is the thing i think it was worthwhile for me to spend a good 12 months to become an area expert to actually go and meet the real estate agents to actually do my own due diligence learn about it because if you if i actually jumped out and went and found a buyer's agent from day one I probably would have believed every single word that the buyer's agent would and he would have sold me on something that could have been a lemon and I would have been stuck at that point in time. So now that I have that experience, that knowledge, if I went to a buyer's agent, I know exactly what I'm looking for. I can communicate exactly what I need from them and then whatever deal they send back to me, I know exactly what due diligence I need to complete to make sure that it is the right deal because ultimately, you make your money going into any deal, not when you've actually purchased it because by then you would have you know, hopefully made sure that there's enough buffer in it. So, I think it was important to actually do that but not spend 12 months which is what I did. I think I could have shortcut it and done it in say three months, learned a lot about the area but found a buyer's agent and then worked with them to actually get moving because after about say 12 months, I just got frustrated and said, this is not for me. It's not working. You know, you kind of throw in the towel and go, <laughs> I got to try something else because I thought I gave it enough time. But luckily, I didn't give up. I, I said, I'm going to try and find another person to hold me accountable, give me support and that's what she did. She was fantastic in that sense was that she said, look, Tyrone, you've got a lot of experience. You've got a great podcast. You've got a lot of people following you who have potentially, you know, some money here like money um, partners and so forth. You could actually try and tee up with someone who has deals and you know you put together the deal and make it work so that way you can actually get started. Otherwise, if you want to try and do it yourself, it's going to take twice as long or even longer than that and you'll make a lot of mistakes so why not just partner with someone? And that was a big aha moment for me as well because 
it was that mindset shift that I needed. I mean, I could learn so much, I could do so much, but if I didn't have the mindset shift that she gave me and put things in perspective, I probably would have still been stuck. And also something that was holding me back in terms of my LinkedIn beliefs was that <laughs> I thought it's going to be too hard to get money because who's going to trust me? I've never done this before. And, and that was probably something that just stalled me for a while because I said, oh, look, I'm going to go and find the deal. And then if the deal is that good, I'll, I'll go and find the money. But I didn't have confidence to know that that was going to happen. That's probably why I procrastinate not to do the deals a lot of times because I, I was showing a lot of deals by agents, but I just never jumped on board. That's a common problem a lot of people have is that uh, they believe that nobody will invest in them for deal number one. Um, and, and they put these limiting beliefs in front of them to say, well, that's, you know, I, I need to prove myself first before someone will actually come. And, and I would spin that on its head and go, well, it's not about whether you've done it before or not. It's whether or not you can solve somebody's problem. And for the people that have the money, the problem you're solving is well, you've done the education, you've done the, the, the effort, you've done the research, you've done the effort, you're, you're providing your skills and knowledge, which they haven't done. So you're, you're solving a problem for them by making their money work where they don't have the time, energy, resources or, or knowledge to do. And so it's about if you can solve their problem, they'll happily invest. That's spot on actually, Rob, because I didn't know it at the time and that's what I actually did. So it was like, I was kind of almost stumbled in it by accident and that's that's exactly what happened and, and this is where my coach said to me look I, i've got someone who's interested um he's got actually a deal right now he needs a money partner to be able to come in and, and fund this deal and he said he just said basically to me time you go and find that money partner and and we'll do the deal together like we'll just get you together like she didn't have to tell me um like she wasn't involved in that deal she just basically said do this do that and i said all right <laughs> you became the facilitator so you weren't finding the deal um, and you, I guess, went and found the money partner and you were the facilitator that kind of the glue that joined those together. Exactly. And then, you know, at the, at the end, I managed to strike a, a fantastic, um, I guess, joint venture uh, partnership in, in place, which, you know, I still was able to take a profit share out of that deal as well too. Now, that was um, back in 2019, April 2019. So not, so not that long ago. No, not that long ago. So that was my actual first property development that I actually officially did and up in Queensland. Um, yeah, so that, that one was a simple one into two lots subdivision. The front half of the house or the front half of the block, I should say, that we were going to subdivide had just basically a, a rundown house. It just needed a bit of TLC and essentially, yeah, we did the full renovation to make it look the way it was that we were going to put it on the market literally about nine months later. Now we had that valued after it was fully renovated, and the 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 um, was it the real estate agent said to us, "Look, you'd probably get more than what you had anticipated, like a hundred thousand dollars more." And thought, "Great, we'd made some money already," um, but that was on paper; it wasn't necessarily sold yet. <laughs> I thought, "Yeah, this is exciting." And then we finally got our subdivision to approve from the council to sell off the back of the lot to get the title and so forth. Luckily, that was all done. And we were really on a high by March 2020 <laughs> and we put it on the market. Anyone know that date, folks? <laughs> yes, uh, we put it on the market and um, yeah, we were anticipating. We had lots of people come through and we we're all on a high. But unfortunately, as you all know, by about April 2020, COVID hit pretty hard. Everything went locked down, people went quiet and unfortunately, this property didn't sell. Both properties actually, the, the land and the house. And unfortunately for us, 
the next 12 months was really a hard journey because we tried to find people to buy it and yeah, it took literally 12 months later before we could sell it and we finally offloaded it in April 2021. Now, unfortunately, we didn't make any money. But you didn't lose money either. Yeah, I didn't lose money at all but it was the time, time and effort and opportunity cost um, because potentially they could have been doing something else with that money as well too. Luckily for the investor who put his money, he still got his return. So as we promised him, we would pay him back for it and there was enough money in that to pay him down. But in terms of all the effort and time and our profit share that we're supposed to make from that deal, zip, we got nothing back from it. And I guess I put it to a learning experience because if I didn't do that, I don't think I would have stumbled across into my next deal, which is where things started to change. And I might as well jump into that. Luckily at that point in time, at the end of 2019, around about end of November, early December, um, I was still going through both the properties, or sorry, going through this property at, at Queensland. And I thought, you know, things are going really well. So I thought, let's try and open up an uh, opportunity to do another deal. And, and once again, my coach actually brought this one to me. She said, look, since you've done well with that one so far, not knowing COVID was going to come along. It wasn't finished at that point, so it was, it was going great. Yeah, I'd like to introduce you to another developer who has another deal, one into four down in Victoria. And I thought, all right, well, great. You know, this is going well. I'm happy to, to fund it as well. This time around, I didn't actually need to do any work. All I had to do was basically come in with debt funding, just lend money across to the deal and, and help him out. It was a sad situation though because he had everything fully funded um, at that point in time and then one, one of his family members passed away suddenly. It was just out of the blue. And when that happened, he couldn't afford, not, not afford, but he couldn't um, take the money because it was a deceased person. So he returned the money back to his family and he said, look, I'm a bit stuck. I need some help. So I said, all right, I'll come in and fund that with another um, investor. And, and that's what we kind of did. We, we put in like 200 odd K and it was end of December. Then literally in two weeks time, <laughs> and we, we managed to do it and he agreed to pay us in 12 months time that amount. Now, 12 months later, as you know, it was end of 2020, but um, we didn't get to that point by about April 2020, he reached out to me and I thought, gosh, this is not looking good as well. I was worried that I'd have the same situation where we had um, with the one up in Queensland. But he said to me, look, um, I'm actually calling you to let you know that we've got a developer who wants to refinance us out or pay us out and um, would you like to get your money and I'll pay you the interest that I said for 12 months, I'll pay you now, which is literally six months. If I can do that, would you be interested in taking the money? I said, heck yeah, why not? Everyone wants their money back early, absolutely. Exactly. And it was COVID because you don't know what was going to happen. So, it was the perfect timing for me to exit. So, you know, within a couple of weeks, everything was done, signed papers and we got our money back. And I was like, wow, this is the first time I actually experienced what it's like to do now what we call like a loan, like a debt deal um, against the security and we get our interest back and, and paid pretty much on time. So, or even earlier. So, that, that's kind of where the journey started. And, and since then, we've done, um, since COVID, time we've done about 22 type of these type of deals doing about 25 million dollars worth of funding um, obviously it's not all my own money but it, it's organically grown from there because i only had so much money i could invest into these type of deals so I just start sharing with the community and it's just organically grown so you jumped there really quick so i just want to rewind that and play that back for everyone so they actually catch it so you've gone from uh attempting to, to do your own things and hitting glass ceilings to how do I build businesses to, so you've got years and years of, of trying but having all these false starts. Uh, and then when it finally happened, it kind of went bang, 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 really quick, right? 
and, and that's that it's that really quick escalation point that I want to uh, I guess highlight here because uh, it sometimes will take you years and years and years to become an overnight success um, and it's and it's all the lessons that you picked up along the way that are really the key that said well I can actually recognize the opportunity I can see that I can see the thing and and you assemble those pieces so um, so I'm going to replay those numbers. You said 22 deals that you are funding right now uh, for approximately $25 million. And that's largely happened in three years. Two years, uh, I'd say from COVID. So, so basically at the end, or at the start of COVID, about March, um, April, that's when I said I got my first deal out. It was only, it was about three or four months later, that's when I actually found the deals because I said to myself, man, if this actually could work, I, I want to do more of these deals because I don't like having my cash sitting in the bank account. I might as well just fund more of these and, and that's where I start looking for opportunities like that and I started stumbling across a few of them and obviously got uh, uh, sent across a few more from my coach as well and yeah, I think realistically, we kind of started funding a lot of these deals around about mid to end of 2020 because that's when the market started to improve, you know. And I think that's when also the market was also tightening up because there's not much cash in the market. So opportunity came out of COVID and very, very, yeah, amazing how in such a short space of time this all happened. And we had to move pretty quickly because I think a lot of people just had cash pent up and, and wanted to do something with it rather than actually just let it sit in the bank. And I was exactly in that same position. So yeah, it was very, very big, big learning lessons in that because I think for me, the challenges that I faced running a business before was that yes, once you actually start getting a lot of demand, how do you meet that with supply? And my challenge was back then, I had a lot of demand, especially from um, the investors and I wasn't able to get enough deals and, and I guess, you know, I just kept having to go out and find these deals and eventually a lot more deals would come through and it's kind of still that way actually. We still got a lot of... um a lot of uh, supply, uh, sorry, a lot of demand in the market because we've got a lot of funding but we're just not able to find all the great deals that we're trying to you know, provide for them. And I think my biggest learning lesson and mindset shift in this is that there's always going to be money because as I said to you, my biggest limiting belief when I first started was like, who's going to fund this? You know, I don't have any money. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to be able to find all this money but obviously, it's, it's complete 360 for me right now because the fact is, is there's so much money available and if the deal is so good, people will want to fund it and that's what's happened. People say that. People say if the deal is good enough, the money will come, right? But I, I genuinely see thousands of people in my community that don't have that belief and because they don't have the belief, they kind of go in half-hearted into it. So what would be your guidance on... You know, I guess just the fact that we've got those limiting beliefs that sit in front of us, what would be your guidance on how do you actually overcome that? I'll tell you how I overcame that just by doing it. <laughs> um, it, it. It doesn't happen like, you know, you can't just shift it in your mind. It's, it's hard. I can tell you that. When I first started, as I said, I kept worrying about, you know, the fear, the procrastination that prevented me from actually doing a lot of the deals because I was worried that, you know, people are not going to be able to fund it. Like the first deal I funded, as I said, was a couple hundred thousand. Then the next deal after that was about half a mil and it was sort of hovering about that half a mil to about 600,000 for many, many months because I was saying, oh, who's going to fund a mil? And then when the deal came for a mil, I put it out there and it just got funded. I'm like, 
well, you know, if, there, if, if it does, you know, if there's a demand for it, then why not? And then obviously, you know, we've, we're putting out larger and larger deals. Um, there will be a certain time that I, I will put a cap to it because obviously I've got to mitigate the risk and protect investors' funds and so forth. Um, but at the same time, as I said, to help overcome that limiting belief is actually just do one. Do a small one just to start off to get comfortable and go, okay, wow, you know, if I can actually get someone to fund maybe a $300,000 development, it gives you that confidence and, and make sure obviously it's completed. And then once you've done it and got your money back, then you go and do the next one and you keep doing it until you get more and more comfortable. And that's that's what's happened with me because I, I thought, you know, 200000 was going to be the most people are going to fund. <laughs> I proved that wrong. And, you know, at this point where I am, 25 mil, <laughs> that is insane for me because it has completely shifted my mindset guy. Well, if, if there's that much money that's available, I'm sure there's going to be like 50 mil, 100 mil that's available. And I've learned that, you know, if you just put it out there and trust that the, the deal is good, people will come and fund it. And the moment you can work out that you can do a deal when you've got no money is the moment that you can work out you can do any deal on earth. It's so true. Absolutely. And this is this is where the confidence comes in. Like at the moment, I'm looking at another deal where I don't have the money, but I know that the deal stacks up so good. I just go present to a few investors and it's close to 10 mil. And I'm like, okay. Back then, I would have said, no, I can't do it because I don't know how. But now I just go, okay, close the deal by negotiating the best you can and then put it back to the lenders or the investors and then, you know, it'll come, it'll work. There you go. So, uh, mate, um, some really powerful lessons that have come out of that at lots of different stages of your journey. Um, what would be some of the biggest takeaways that you want our audience to actually take away with from, you know, what are the, the, the big ticket items that you know that were a stumbling block for you that you know that if, if they just took this one piece of advice on, that that, that would kickstart them and save them years of heartache? For me, as I said, I think the key thing was overcoming the fear and procrastinating factor as I said to you, when I was spending 12 months looking for a deal, I think that was just me procrastinating because even though I did a lot of action and went on site, met a lot of real estate agents and stuff like that, I never took the, the I never closed the deal as, as per se. I just never took that that plunge to do it. And it's it was because I was fearful going, okay, what happens if I purchase this triplex um, site and you know I wouldn't be able to raise the funds for it? What happens if I did all this and I put all these limiting factors in my mind fearful that it wouldn't work out. If I had actually just taken the plunge and actually went out and found like a potential developer and, you know, did the numbers with a financier and put this all together as a deal and, and make sure the numbers all stacked up, I, I should have just gone ahead and done it. But I think it was just at that point when I went, mm, the numbers don't look good, it, the site looks crap, blah, 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 I just made all these excuses, I, I ended up not doing anything. And I think that's, that's the key is to Surround yourself, one advice I'd say, surround yourself with really, really competent people, people who have very, very much strong expertise in their field and, and tap on their shoulders and, and learn from them and, and I guess get them to help you in that side of things because you can never do this yourself and it's changing that mindset of going rather than do it myself like a how, I'm trying to think how can Tyrone do it, go who can actually help you with this. And, and that makes a huge, huge mindset shift. And that's probably one of the key takeaways I'd probably pass on to your listeners. So three words, folks, who, not how.
Thank you to Rob Flox for interviewing me on this special episode of Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.